Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin Dr. Newfeld's series, The Lifestyle of the Gospel, with a message entitled, The Lifestyle of the Gospel. Now, we're going to begin this series for the next two weeks and conclude it in the first two weeks of January. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Some of you will remember the old Peanuts comic strip, which told the stories of children. The lovable loser Charlie Brown and his friends Lucy, Linus Pigpen, and his dog Snoopy. You know, in one of those comic strips, Charlie Brown and Lucy are engaged in a conversation. And Lucy says quite philosophically that life is like a deck chair. She says that some place their deck chairs so they can see where they are going, and some place them so they can see where they've been, and some place them so they can see where they are at present. Life is like a deck chair, and it's all about where you place them. And Charlie Brown thinks about that for a moment, and he says, I can't even get mine unfolded. Well, let's use Lucy's image. All of us know that people arrange their deck chairs differently or develop certain kinds of lifestyles. And those lifestyles are a reflection of who they are and what they're committed to. They tell us what we think are the most important things, and they reflect on what we believe. So if you wear a Hells Angels patch, it probably means something very different than if you wear a suit and a tie. If you choose to become a medical doctor, if you choose to work at Greenpeace, if you choose to become a plumber, a nurse, a real estate agent, or an engineer, or if you choose to become a member of an organized crime syndicate, each one of those choices probably says something about what you value or cherish. But lifestyles are also about who we choose as friends and how we use our spare time and whether or not we desire to marry and have children, how we use our sexuality and what kinds of hobbies and interests we pursue. A great many people think that lifestyles are all about how much money we have. You know, if you have a lot, you can afford a house by some body of water and another one close to where you work. You know, for many of us, it has everything to do with what kind of car you drive and the toys you own and the vacations that you take. And if you have a lot of money, you can build a house that looks like the Taj Mahal. And if you have less money, maybe you're renting and your car is a 12-year-old economy car. See, for many, that's what lifestyle is. It's about what we do and how much money we make and whether we marry and the things that we buy and the things that we do in our spare time. Well, perhaps. But I know a man who's very wealthy and he lives in a very normal house and drives a normal car and has given almost everything he has away. He earns money to advance his interest in missions, the preaching of the gospel. He proves his lifestyle in that he can afford so much more than he has, but he's deliberately chosen to deny himself of things he could have for the sake of things that he thinks are of most importance. And so in some cases, and not many, but in some, money is not an indicator of how a person lives. And that's why when people define what they mean by lifestyle, they say that lifestyle is the style people choose to live. It's the way a person lives. It's an expression of attitudes, of interests, opinions, values, and the allocation of income. Or to use Lucy's definition, it's, it's how you arrange your deck chairs. Now, to that matter, is there such a thing as a Christian lifestyle? Now, now when I say that, I've noticed that non-Christians sometimes ask the question. So, for instance, 
I have heard non-Christians ask, does being a Christian mean that you can't drink or have sex or go to parties? And to others, it means that you can't become ostentatious with your wealth. And what I mean to say is that for a great many people, a Christian lifestyle is about the rules. And for the rest of the non-religious population, a lifestyle represents the freedom to develop your own way of living without the rules. Indeed, a great many non-Christians do think that a Christian lifestyle is about rules, rules they think are overly restrictive. Well, Peter writes about this very thing when addressing Christians living in the Roman Empire with its open sensuality. Listen to how he addresses believers in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Have you noticed that not a lot has changed in 2,000 years? Indeed, one of the reasons I tell Christian young people never to have a boyfriend or girlfriend who's not a Christian, well, it's because in the culture we now live, sex now goes with dating. It's expected. It's an essential part of the dominant lifestyle. And so to refuse sex and dating is to suggest that there's something wrong with you and they think it's strange. And that being said, So many new Christians often ask, what is expected of me now? What are the rules now? And it's tempting to approach the lifestyle of the gospel that way, with rules for holy living. And the Bible approaches a Christian lifestyle quite differently. The Bible teaches us that we can't develop a Christian lifestyle until we settle the foundation. And the Bible wants to ask us, what do you believe now? Can you articulate that? Well, it's important. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying that for the Christian, our lifestyle doesn't begin with what are the rules, nor does it begin with what are the kind of things that I desire. You know, for Christians, everything begins with what do I believe? That's because the Bible assumes that how we live is a direct overflow of what we believe. And that, by the way, is not just true for Christians. Actually, it's true for everyone. Now, look, I know of some Christians who are browbeaten by their community to to dress in a certain way, talk in a certain way, to spend their money in a certain way, and to abstain from certain behaviors. And they seem to toe the line until they either become so browbeaten they no longer have personal desires, or they finally rebel and walk away from the entire church scene. But did you know this is also a reflection of what we believe? See, some of us believe that the opinions of others are more important than anything else, and some of us, well, we don't. That's a reflection of what we believe and a reflection of what we value. It's a reflection of who we are. See, the way we live is always a reflection of what we believe. It's a reflection of what we love, what we think is most important, what we long for, and what our hearts desire. No one just lives by the rules. Almost always, the rules reflect what their heart finds delightful. So today, I'm beginning a new series, which will be a verse-by-verse study of Romans 12 to 16. And I've entitled this series, The Lifestyle of the Gospel. But before I begin, let me say that there can be no lifestyle of the gospel unless you're truly and authentically converted to Christ. 
And when I launch into my verse-by-verse study, and that starts tomorrow, we're going to notice that Paul, who's the author of Romans, begins this section by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, that phrase, of course, includes sisters. But the point is that this is intended for those who know Christ, who have the benefit of the Spirit living within them. See, unless we have known Christ, we simply can't live a Christian life. Your heart will rebel against it. The lifestyle of the gospel will seem onerous. You'll become frustrated. It will be a burden to you, and you will quit as a failure. And that, by the way, is why I think it a bad idea to impose the rules of holy living on non-Christians. Now, having said that, if you're not a Christian, the lifestyle of the gospel may seem appealing to you. I mean, you remember Peter's words. He said that some Gentiles were shocked and surprised that believers did not join them in their lifestyle of sensuality. But in 1 Peter, Peter also makes a different point. 1 Peter 2 verse 12 says to believers, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that passage, at least in my estimation, well, it's fascinating. Let's see if we can reconstruct the scenario. Some unbelievers are speaking evil against believers primarily, and we have to assume, because of their lifestyles. But as they examine these lifestyles more closely, they see it laced with good deeds. Perhaps they see that believers don't respond in kind. And when they're insulted, they don't insult back. Rather, they bless. Well, at any rate, whatever it is about the lifestyle of the believer, well, it causes this unbeliever to glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, the day of visitation might be a reference to their conversion, or it might refer to the second coming of Christ. But at any rate, Peter says that the way we live our lives is a witness to non-believers. It says that the way we live our lives does speak out to them, inviting them to consider something so much better than what's being offered to them now. For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. As we believe the truth about eternity is so critical, for the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote about the book, it is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today, or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I remember years ago leading a young man who had been an atheist to faith in Christ. And he told me that his long journey toward Christ started in high school 
when a fellow student who was a Christian so impressed him that he never lost the fascination for what made this guy the way he was. And it turns out that young Christian man was a member of my congregation. Christian lifestyle can be overwhelmingly attractive, but it can also be the cause of criticism and abuse. But Christian lifestyle is never begun by learning the do's and the don'ts and trying them on for size. Let's go back again to Romans 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is a fascinating phrase because if I understand it rightly, Paul, the author of Romans, is giving the proper motivation for the Christian lifestyle. Paul is appealing to believers to live out their faith, and now notice on what basis he does so. He says, by the mercies of God. Notice he doesn't say by the mercy, singular, of God, but rather mercies. The very beginning of the Christian faith starts by having experienced mercy not just once, multiple times. But there's another word in that first verse that we also must not miss. You know, it's the word therefore. The word therefore is a transitional word. In truth, the word therefore points us back to everything that Paul has written in Romans up until he writes therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. You know, Paul is saying, on the basis of everything I've written you in this letter, let me present you with the lifestyle of the gospel. Well then, what has Paul written up to this point? And I might say, he's been writing about the mercies of God. Now, in order to understand this, it's important to know something about the book of Romans. The book of Romans is unique among all the books of the Bible. Paul writes this letter to the Christians who are living in Rome, and what's fascinating about this book is that Paul has never been to Rome, and therefore, he certainly wasn't the founder of that church. It it was begun by others. So why is he writing them? You see, for the most part, the letters that Paul writes to various churches are to churches that he has founded. He loves to call these churches his children in the faith. But here in Romans, Paul has a different reason for writing. Romans 15 verse 24 says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, in other words, I want to come to Rome to get to know you and to inspire you about a great opportunity to expand the gospel of Jesus into Spain and to inspire you to get involved with me. Paul wants the Roman church to support his mission westward. But because that church had never met Paul, Paul thought it necessary to write them and to present to them a full account of what he's been preaching and teaching everywhere he's gone. And that's what makes this book unique. Romans is the only book in the Bible that tells us exactly what it was that Paul preached in every single city he visited. And it's for that reason that Romans is basic Christianity or Christianity 101. And it's also for that reason that Romans is one of the very first books that every Christian should learn. It's quite simply the grounding for our faith, the the ABCs of what we believe. Now, having said that, let me take us into the actual message of Romans. See, the book of Romans can be easily divided into four sections, preceded by an introduction and then followed by a conclusion. But let's start at the beginning. The book of Romans is written by Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus. When Saul of Tarsus was young, he was a rising star in Judaism. He had studied under the very famous Rabbi Gamaliel, 
who had provided him with some of the best education available in the ancient world. And so Saul of Tarsus quickly became a force to be reckoned with. According to his own testimony, he not only mastered the Old Testament scriptures, but he also mastered an impressive lifestyle of unblemished faithfulness to the law of God. You know, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, when he's describing that former life, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What he means to say is that, well, he kept the law. I mean, for those who say it was impossible to keep the law, Paul says, but I did. I watched my lifestyle. I didn't deviate from the laws of God. If there ever was a rule keeper, well, I was that guy. And furthermore, when the church of Jesus Christ began, Paul immediately hated it. He became a fierce opponent of the followers of Jesus. He persecuted them from town to town. And then came that fateful day while he was traveling to Damascus in Syria. He was going to persecute the church there that the resurrected Jesus met him and transformed his life. And Saul of Tarsus, zealous Pharisee, persecutor of the church, became a follower of Jesus Christ and his beliefs and his lifestyle were changed. But that, of course, is but the beginning of the story. Jesus had a very unique and special calling on Paul's life. For three years, while in Arabia, the risen Jesus appeared to him over and over again and taught him the gospel. That's to say, you know, the rest of the apostles were trained by Jesus for three years while Jesus was on earth. But this, the apostle Paul, he was also trained by Jesus, yes, for three years after Jesus had risen from the dead. And that's why Paul would always say what he says so eloquently in Galatians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. And then later in verse 12, he adds, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What was Christ's design in choosing Paul, mentoring him in this unique way? Well, Christ had uniquely chosen him to take his message, his, his good news, and faithfully present it to the Gentile world. See, whereas Peter was called to present the gospel to the Jews, Paul was chosen to make the gospel known to the wider Greco-Roman world. Think of it this way. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he spent virtually all of his time in Israel among the Jewish people. And that's because he was Israel's Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the hope of the First Testament or the Jewish scriptures. But Jesus had come for the whole world so that after his death and resurrection, he had chosen his messenger to take his message to the Gentiles, and that messenger was Paul. And the book of Romans is Jesus' message, the same one he had preached to the Jews but interpreted for the Gentiles. It's the most basic message of Jesus. As I've said before, this unique book, Christianity 101, is well, it's easily divided into four sections. The first section covers chapters 1 to 4, and it's what we might call the heart of the gospel, the very essence of the Christian message. Well, what's the message? Well, first, it seems like bad news. We're all sinners, and indeed, we're far worse sinners than we had ever imagined. And the news gets even more depressing after that. God, who is righteous, is horribly provoked because of our sins. And then the news turns out to be overwhelmingly good. God demonstrated his righteousness best, not in punishing sinners, but, but in punishing Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of sinners. We, says Paul, are made righteous through Jesus Christ. 
He calls that the propitiation for our sins. In the end, all who believe are justified by faith. We obtain a righteousness from God by faith, and that is the heart of the gospel. And now we come to the second section in Romans, a section that covers Romans 5 to 8, a section I like to call the power of the gospel. And by power here, I mean the power to become holy through the gospel. In Romans 5, Paul begins by telling all Christians that because Christ has died for our sins, we have peace with God. God is no longer angry with us. The sin question has been dealt with. In Romans 6, we are told that our old life was buried with Christ. In Romans 7, we learn that sin is still powerful and it can even now subvert us. But in Romans 8, we learned of the Holy Spirit who has given us power to do what we can't do on our own. And what's more, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that allows us to be continually transformed into the image of Christ. And with that, we come to Romans 9 to 11, a section I like to call the progress of the gospel. And that section tells us how it is that God calls men and women to become his followers. And then in chapters 12 to 16, we have, well, the lifestyle of the gospel. Once we have come to know the gospel, every single area of our lives becomes an expression of the gospel. What we believe, how we live, well, it lines up, it's consistent. And so yes, there really is a unique lifestyle of the gospel, and it is this, the lifestyle of the gospel, that will become the subject of our study for the next four weeks. So so join me as we examine Romans chapter 12 to chapter 16. John, as you were talking later on in the message, you mentioned about how Romans is really the core of our faith, and yet we're very reluctant, I think, sometimes. If someone is to say to me, where should I start reading the Bible? Romans isn't likely the place I would typically go, but really it does provide us so much richness of our faith. I think it's it's Christianity 101, and the only reason I think that it's difficult for us is we've not yet been trained to think in this fashion. So, I'm happy to say that a new believer is going to find Romans difficult, but with mentoring and careful reading and someone, you know, sitting beside him or her and helping them through it, I mean, it becomes quite readable after a while, and it does transform the way in which we see the world. So, you know, I guess I want to continually insist on the fact that if there is a book that you should be very, very familiar with, You know, I would say the book of Romans. I would probably add John's gospel to that. Really, that should be the foundation stone. And after that, get to know the rest of the Bible. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue this series in the book of Romans right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld focus on the use of expositional teaching of the Bible, a verse-by-verse, in-depth discovery of Scripture, allowing the Word of God to speak for itself, understanding its context, eternal relevance for today, tomorrow, and for the life of every believer. And we're grateful for all of our listeners, but also that God's timing is perfect, and that the Word of God taught faithfully speaks directly into the life of every believer. And don't forget this month that Dr. John's newest book, Heaven and Hell, is being made available for free simply for the asking. So call us today to request your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.